Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 30th, 2017, and this is episode uh, 2076 of the Survival Podcast. It is Wednesday, that's interview day, and I have on a, a guy, I don't think I've ever had a person on the show three times uh, in, in one year, other than maybe Stephen Harris as a guest, especially uh, as a new guest in that same year. But Vin Armani is returning today, and, and this time at my request. And, and the reason it's at my request is I, I have really enjoyed watching Vin grow his show and his part of growing the Liberty Movement. And about a month ago, I was on Facebook just messing around, and I saw that he had out that he had a new book out. And that book uh, was entitled um, Self-Ownership, the Foundation of Property and Morality. I promptly ordered a couple copies from him with cryptocurrency. As a fellow crypto savage, I felt that was a solid thing to do for a crypto savage brother. But I also sent him an email and said, Vin, look, I don't even know your book specifically about other than the title yet. But I'd like to have you on the show. I'd like to give you a chance to promote it. And I know it'll be a fantastic discussion. Get the uh, form filled out. I'll get it to Dorothy. We'll get you booked. He did that like almost immediately, and we got him booked for today. So we'll have Ben on just a minute to talk about the concepts of self-ownership, the foundation of property and morality. And I think it'll be a great interview. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is westernbotanicals.com. Western Botanicals, long ago, I mean long ago, like I guess seven and a half years ago when they approached me about being a sponsor of the show, sent me some stuff to check out and told me what they were all about, became my go-to place for finding everything herbal. And while they have great herbal preparations, I mean some of the stuff that they have, like their, 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 their cold and flu stuff and things like that are just fantastic. One thing I really like about them is if I want to do something on my own and I just need raw herbs, I can know I can get the highest quality raw herbs I can get things to uh, prepare herbal preparations like you know beeswax, you name it. I mean, menthol crystals for you know limited, limited rubs, you name it. You can get anything from these guys. And what you can really get from them, help. There are real people who really care about you. And if you pick up the phone and say, this is what I'm trying to do, or this is what I don't understand, they will do everything within the bounds of morality and the law to help you. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Remember, if you are MSB and you should be, this one benefit will pay for your membership all by itself. They will give you their premium membership that they sell for 50 bucks for free as a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. More information on that in the benefits section of the MSB. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, ready-made resources. All the resources you need ready-made, ready to go. Point, click, and buy on their website at readymaderesources.com. When I say all of it, I mean all of it. Solar, wind, uh, you name it, 12-volt appliances, long-term storage, food, self-defense, tactical, practical, and everything in between. You will find it all, check, check, and check, at readymaderesources.com. They also do offer discounts to members of the Support Brigade, also in the benefits section of the Member Support Brigade. Next up, let's take a look at the year from history. I made a decision about the year in history. I want to keep this segment short brief and interesting. I have two guys doing a great job for me, and we are no longer tied to the episode. So we did this for a thousand plus episodes. 
where like the episode is uh, you know 1950. So we're gonna talk about the year 1950. Now we're just we went back to the year one and we started forward to catch up where we started originally when we started the segment. Um, Southpaw Ben started doing this, and then David Verne came along and started doing this. So now I'm getting two good segments most days. What I'm going to do from now on, since we're not tied to the episode, I'm going to read one segment, but then I'll read the other segment the next day. So we'll stick with that year till we clear it, and we'll go to the next year. And that way we don't leave anything out, and we keep the uh, segment brief. I'll probably explain this two or three times, and then I'll just start doing it. So just kind of a bifurcation point in how we're doing things here. And what do we have? Segment one for the year 53 AD this year. Nero gets married. Contributed by David Verne. Nero turns 16 this year, the age where Roman boys become adults. He marries Claudius' daughter, 14-year-old Claudia Octavia, in a marriage arranged by his mother, Agrippina. Nero gains a reputation as a great orator when he succeeds in getting tax exemptions for one town and disaster relief funds for another. Narcissus isn't fooled by Nero's outward appearance and sees him for what he is, a second coming of Caligula and advocates for Britannicus, Claudia's natural son, to be named heir instead of Nero. Claudius begins to regret neglecting Britannicus over Nero, and Agrippina begins to grow concerned for Nero's position, since Britannicus will come of age next year. My take by David Verne, the Roman system of secession was very legalistic at the time. The power that the emperor wielded was power given to the office during the constitutional settlements negotiated between Augustus and the Senate. Augustus's powers transferred to his heir upon his death, and so on. The key to becoming emperor during this period was strengthening one's ties to Augustus and trying to prove that they were his true heir. The best way to do this was to be named as heir by the current emperor, but marrying into the imperial family was good as well. The emperors of this era had automatic legitimacy as members of Augustus's bloodline. The advantage of this system was that power struggles were limited to feuding within the Uh, Julio-Claudian family with no claimants other than the other family members. So the advantage is there's only so many psychopaths to fight for the role of head psychopath. Uh, in spite of the fact that these are like murderous psychopathic people, I do want to put out something here, just my take on this, that's kind of disconnected from David's take or even the whole angle of this. And I don't want to be thinking of saying like Nero was a good guy because the guy was a major psychopath. Okay, But Nero, at the age of 16, was out getting tax exemptions for a town and disaster relief funds for another town at the age of 16. The age that young men are seen to become adults in Rome was 16 years old. And in spite of being a psychopath, and I'm sure having some help, how many of our 16-year-olds are capable anymore of getting tax exemptions for a town or disaster relief funds for another, even if you gave them power. I think the lesson here, because there's so much negative in ancient Rome, I want to pull some positive. The lesson here is when you treat people like adults, and you expect from them what you would expect from adults, and you do not coddle them and you say it is your time to stand up and be what you can be, that's what you get, even at the age of 16. Where today we have 28-year-olds that are playing video games in their parents' basements. Not all 28-year-olds. Don't be pissed by that if you're not... If you're a 28-year-old and you're not doing that, then you know what I'm talking about. I think this is a societal problem. 
I also think there's a major psychopath problem going on in Rome, but I'm going to save that for our song of the day at the end. I got something special for you when we get to it. Before we get Vin on the air, let's go ahead and uh, remind you guys real quick about the Member Support Brigade. If you want to join the Member Support Brigade, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And uh, when you do that, you'll see all the ways that you can sign up. I take cryptocurrency, I take credit cards, I take PayPal, I take cash, check, money order. I, even though it doesn't say it, I will even take barter. You have a barter idea for me, get in touch with me by email, let me know. The MSB pays for itself many times over. Check it out, you'll see why. I'll go brief with that today because I want to say something before we get Vin on. One more thing. It's not only housekeeping, it's like really important. I want to let you know what's going on with Citizens Assisting Citizens in South Texas and let you know that you know we continue to need your help with this. Um, I put out a post today on this, and, and I'll just read it to you because I think it's probably the easiest way to do this. This is just a smattering of what is and has been going on. Right now we have at least seven people on the ground in South Texas. We have people currently north of Houston and all the way over into the west in the Aransas Pass area just to the east of Corpus Christi. We have been helping direct, we have been directly helping people on the side of the road, supplying clothing, food, water, feminine hygiene products, etc. to shelters, and our people are now hooking up with work crews to provide labor to clean up debris and more. Right now we have one group that will be arriving at my place tonight to rest before heading south in the morning. That group alone is made up of six more responders. A friend of mine right now has gone out and worked with others to fill a trailer with supplies. By the way, he did that all on his own instead of going through CAC. Out of his pocket, out of his friend's pockets. Okay, just just to tell you the way that this is all coming together. Um, he's bringing it to my place today. And the team of six will be taking it south with them. So he's so here's my trailer, here's a bunch of stuff, take it and bring the trailer back. Use the trailer while you're down there. How awesome is that, right? CAC is doing exactly what I envisioned, totally unconstrained by bureaucracy. We're able to adapt to the situation and make the best use of opportunities as they present themselves. Here is one example. A gentleman named Chris was one of our first responders to come down. He stayed at my house for two nights. The first day, he and two others drove south and actually had a hard time finding people in need of aid. They made a decision to relocate further south the next day to another safe house. During the first day, though, they did locate a church that was in need of clothing for evacuees. They had a pretty specific list of stuff they were in most need of. That same day on Nextdoor.com, I located a neighbor that said she had a 10 by 10 filled room ceiling to floor with clothes. I connected Chris to her. She got the list and started pulling stuff aside based on it. The next morning, Chris and the other two gentlemen rolled out with two vehicles stuffed to the gills with this clothing. So yes, we're using our funding to buy food, hygiene products, water, etc. as needed, but we are also using our manpower to find any resource and any need and match them and put them together. With this, I ask you to please, if you have not done so, consider donating to the CAC team today. I don't know of any other group that's putting 99% of all donated funds directly into supplies for those who need them. Our staff takes no salary, and the only cost we cover for our field responders is gasoline. To help, you can find... To, to help, you can find out how to become a responder by emailing Stephen Harris at support, uh, Stephen Harris at support at knowledgepublications.com with I want to help CAC in the subject line, or you can make a financial do donation at the CAC website, which is at CACteam.com, and you can see the video and the post that I made to see some of the action going on below. And I'll tell you, like, we're just ramping up. We're, we, we actually were so far ahead of this, we did have trouble finding people, um, There's a lot of us doing coordination work that we're not on the ground. We're back here trying to find exactly where the needs are. There's a lot of people that are still stuck where we can't get to. 
There's a lot of people that are at shelters that are being well-run, well-stocked, and don't really need a bunch more stuff right now. And we're looking for the people that have fallen through the cracks. If you remember, when I created this concept, originally it wasn't called CAC, it was called DRT, or Disaster, Disaster Response Team. So it was the TSP DRT. Um, my view was looking at Hurricane Sandy. There were places where people were getting help, but there were places where people fell through the cracks, cracks and weren't getting any help. That's what we're doing right now. And as the thing gets more coalesced and more organized, instead of just helping these people on the sites, we'll move more into the direct areas. And I'm sure we'll be doing things like helping people pull drywall out of their house. That's going to be a real need as these floodwaters reside. And we're going to do whatever it takes to help the people most in need at any given time. And we're going to have responders that come down for a week and leave, and new responders coming in. And, and that means, like, if you want to help and you're thinking, man, I just can't do this right now. I'm telling you, in two or three weeks, we're still going to need people to help. And we're going to still need money so that those people can help. I mean, even if it's just, like I said, paying for the gas for these people to drive around. I think that's a reasonable thing for us to do uh, as a charitable uh, organization is to cover people's gas costs. So at least all they have to do is feed themselves, and we're finding them places to stay. Um, and, and But, you know, they're taking time away from work and, and what have you. Um, This is going to go on for a long time. This is the worst disaster to ever hit Texas. I believe while it looks different, it's worse than Katrina. It's less extreme in the hype than Katrina because you don't have a bunch of people being raped in the Superdome because, frankly, we're running things better than that here. But the total devastation and loss is worse than Katrina. It's not over yet. The rain's still coming down. And there's going to be flooding through the next couple days in Louisiana and probably Arkansas. Nowhere near as bad as Houston, but bad. So please do what you can to help. Share this organization. Everybody's talking about helping right now. Everybody wants to help. Everybody wants to help. You know, you can give money to, like, the Red Cross, and they're not a terrible organization, but they're going to spend an awful lot of it doing things other than actually directly helping people. We set this up to, so that you give a dollar, a dollar goes to the person that needs help. And, and that, that, to me, is so important. And I am, I am so tired of seeing charities out there that their primary job is fundraising instead of doing the work that needs to be done. It makes me sick. But in the words of our coming guest, instead of bitching about something, do something about it. And, and that's what we've done. And not everybody can take off work and come down here and help. But you can scrape up five bucks or ten bucks. If, if 10% of this audience gave ten bucks, That would be about $150,000 that would go directly to disaster relief. I don't think we'll do that. But can we get 20% there? 15% there? I mean, seriously, like, can we all do a little bit? And remember, I don't benefit in any way by this. Obviously, no one really does because no one takes a salary or anything. I am not even on the board of directors. I'm not even advisor to the board. I built this. To a certain level, I put together a team. I said, you guys know what you're doing. You have my blessing. You have my brand associated with you. Go. And I disconnected so that I could be completely impartial. So I'm asking you as a friend and the guy that's talked to you over the microphone for so many years, providing you all the information and education and entertainment that I can, this is a time to step up and make a difference. Please consider doing so. With that, let's talk about somebody that's making a difference in a lot of lives as well in the world of personal liberty, self-ownership, prosperity, property, and morality. My good buddy, Vin Armani. With that, hey, Vin, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. 
Thank you for having me again. It's always awesome to be on. I was saying, I think you're the only person I've ever had on the show this many times in a single year other than our, uh, our buddy Stephen Harris. Um, because what you're doing is so in line with what we're doing here, even though we're taking some different approaches to it, we're both primarily focused on individual and personal liberty for people. So I appreciate you coming back. Before we get into your, your new book, which is called Self-Ownership, The Foundation of Property and Morality, which is why I have you on for, for those that maybe haven't caught one of your previous appearances, don't know that much about you, tell us kind of who you are and what you're doing in the world of liberty right now and kind of the interesting path you took to get there. Okay, so yeah, maybe I can just start with some background. I guess my primarily how these ideas came into my reality is that from uh, early age, my, well, my father is a technology entrepreneur, so I was around a lot of computers and, and things starting in the late 70s, early 80s. And then in my teenage years, I was really heavily into hacking, uh, both kind of on, a, I mean, I was never a super hardcore black hat hacker, but I certainly was, you know, I was a teenage kid and, you know, you experiment and do some various different things. So At that time, that was a very, very early days of the Internet. We're talking like 94, 95, 96. And believe it or not, what was on the Internet at that time was a lot of sort of counterculture, anarchists, very weird and out there ideas, uh, kind of kind of similar to what's what. Well, there's not as much commerce, but what started out on the dark web as well. Those things that were that it just amazed me. And so. As I traveled through my life, and then I became a software developer and uh, was living all over the place, but D.C. and then L.A., I always had this sort of libertarian bent that was there for me from a very early age. My family, however, were, were pretty left-leaning. Um, I, I would say even towards socialists. My brother actually, I think, may be an avowed socialist, my younger brother. Um, I, I eventually, as I started more becoming an entrepreneur, those ideas faded away. Um, and then I weirdly, weirdly got asked to be on a TV show that's on Showtime that's called Gigolos, and it's about male escorts here. It's a reality show about male escorts here in Vegas, and that was a really, I know, it's, it's kind of odd for those who don't know, know who I am and where I'm coming from, but it was an eye-opening experience to be in a, uh, a non-violent voluntary, incredibly free market that was also a cash business and that was a gray market. And to start to understand that like, wow, not only are there very highly functional gray markets that police themselves very, very well, but there's a larger philosophical issue here. And so when the elections started to, to come about, I mean, I have a philosophy education, that's my formal education. When the elections started to come about, I uh, started doing some rants about these ideas, about uh, black and gray markets, about agorism, about anarchism, about libertarianism, and ActivistPost.com caught wind of what I was doing, asked me if I'd like to do a podcast, which then we now do a, a weekly multi-camera, uh, basically a, a TV show for two hours with news and guests, and then we turn that into a podcast as well for those people who just want to listen to it. But that's that's basically what the last year has been for me. So. These ideas have been there, and the idea of self-sufficiency, particularly on the tech side. Um, so I'm really systems-oriented just in my brain, and I like to do my own stuff. Um, so that's, I mean, that's basically who I am. That's my background, and I, the rest, I guess, people can, can watch my show every week. Very cool, man. It's, it's interesting to me. We have a very similar background in a lot of ways. 
Um, except that I have what I call a face and a voice made for radio, so I could not be go. in your other profession. Uh, wouldn't do very well there. I don't know. I think you've done pretty. I, I think you're pretty damn good on camera too. We had you on camera on the show yeah. a number of times, and it's pretty good. Yeah, uh, but I mean, when you're talking about like the hacker, like light, kind of lightweight hacker stuff, like so, my first computer was a Commodore 64. I was on like the earliest, like the, the, the precursor to um, message boards and stuff like that when I was like, you know, in grade school. And uh, that that kind of like it gets me an understanding of where like when the web started up in the first iterations of the dark web and all why it kind of went to kind of a counterculture anarcho type thing, whether it was leftist or rightist anarcho stuff, because like kids were the ones that did that. And you have this just natural anti-authoritarian beat mm -hmm. to what's going on. And as you discover more that you can do with technology, if you still have that going on in your head, you start thinking, well, what can I do with this? Um, and as we've seen, like, a lot of really cool stuff and some not-so-great stuff, but I, I think Liberty's heading in the right direction, personally. Now, what I kind of want to lead off with on the subject of your book and the topic of today, Vin, is use the term self-ownership. Going back, I guess, about 2009, my show was really young. I remember I did an episode I called, uh, so it was like Personal Declaration of Independence. Right, so you look back at what our Declaration of Independence was for the nation. I basically said people should do that, and that was to me the concept of self ownership. What is self ownership to you? What are you talking about when you talk about self ownership? Well, so maybe I, I can go a little deeper into what the reason that I even put the book together was, because sure. I think that answers the question. So, as I studied more and more. Um, whether you want to call it libertarian, whether you want to call it voluntarist, well, the, the work and philosophy, the writings and the practices of people who have been in the pursuit of more human liberty throughout the ages, one thing that keeps coming up over and over and over again, and it's, it comes up in the Declaration of Independence itself, the, this idea of natural law, um, John Locke really articulated it well in terms of English-speaking people, and he's probably the best known, but these ideas of life, that you're endowed by your creator with life, liberty. He said the pursuit of property, um, Locke did. But he also at a later time talked about that the pursuit of happiness was actually a larger thing, and that's what Jefferson used. But what I always found lacking was, here's this very important thing, property. And the respect for private property is certainly, it's foundational and fundamental to an idea of a peaceful society. I mean, we embody the, the, this idea, right? If you have a community of people and they all respect each other's property, you're going to have a lot less violence than a society where people don't respect it, where they're stealing from each other, where they're destroying each other's property, where they're causing these claim conflicts between each other. What I always felt was missing, though, was as I had conversations with people, particularly now a lot of socialists, the concept of ownership itself. What does ownership even mean? Like, what does that mean? You ask 20 people and you get 20 different answers. And I said, that's a problem. It's a problem because how can we discuss ideas of property and whether, for instance, private property or communal property is the way to go if the people who are, who we're talking to about these things don't even agree on the definition of ownership? So I set out to say, to, to present an idea of, okay, what is ownership on a very basic level that anyone can agree to that's self-evident? Are there things that can be owned and can't be owned? 
And if they can't be owned or can be, what are the prerequisites for ownership itself in the first place, right? Laying out these these definitions in a way that was not leaning to one side or the other, but it's just that, you know what, whether you are a socialist, whether you are a free market uh, agorist, that you could both sit down and say, well, at least I agree that this is what ownership means. So when we have a conversation, we're using the same dictionary. Yes, exactly. Because if you if you want to have peaceful negotiation, that's where it's all got to start. It's got to start on the de- the base definition, right? And what's surprising is that often if we can agree on the base definition of something, we as we do the logical progression through our own argument, we start to realize that we actually don't have opposing views on something, right? It's that it's a lot of times we can we can get around these conflicts just by defining the base base terms and then logically progressing through. And that's what I sought to do. Now, as I did this, what I realized and what I I, I came to understand was that certainly our bodies are our property. And I go into the reason why that is. The prerequisites of ownership are basically the idea that you can interact with something that you uh, know that it exists, that's the first thing, obviously, that you can interact with it, obviously. If you can't interact with it, how can you make an ownership claim? And that you have at least the capability to defend it. Not that if somebody comes and takes it away and you are unable for to, to prevent that theft, that you don't own it, but it's to say, look, do you have the capability to defend the planet Uranus, right? Do you have the capability to even defend it if somebody else wanted to come and make a claim? Obviously, you don't, so it's unownable by you. Now, maybe sometime in the future, it might be ownable by humans, perhaps, right? But at this point, it's at this point, it's not. It's not ownable by you. You can't have a, a claim to it. And so our physical being and our body, certainly our thoughts and our sensations, no one else can think our thoughts. No one else can feel our feelings. And as I started to dig deeper, that really at the core of it all, although we can't have absolute truth, is the idea that, and no one can deny this, that no one else can feel your pain. No one else can feel any suffering that you have exactly as you feel it. They can have empathy for it. We can empathize, yes, but we cannot feel the pain of another person. Cannot feel that pain. So your pain is exclusively yours. You know that it exists. You can interact with it, certainly, and you have the capability to de- to defend it. In other words, since nobody else can interact with it, they simply can't own it. But you have the capability to prevent pain from happening. And I believe that that is that is the idea of the pursuit of happiness. And so what I what I started to realize was that oh wow, if if we can agree on that definition, and then if we say okay, I self ownership, I own myself, it is my property. That really the key to morality then, and this is why it's the foundation of both property and morality, that the key to morality is, you know, what are the immoral acts, the typical immoral acts that someone would say, theft, right, assault, initiating violence against someone, murder, rape. Well, theft, we understand that's respect of private property. But then the assault, the murder, certainly the rape isn't, why that's so bad is that it's, when you think about the body as being our sole domain, that it's actually somebody infringing upon both our bodily autonomy and, in a way, stealing. Sure. Right? No, it absolutely is theft. It's a theft. It's, it's that combination. So what it is is that if we can go back to just agreeing on this definition, the base definition, and then of what ownership is, draw it forward to say, 
not only can I own my body and can I own my feelings and my thoughts, which then becomes my labor, but I'm the only individual who can make a claim to it. And so at that point, you see, okay, this is actually not just the place that morality, that property comes from, but this is also the place that our notion of morality comes from. And if we want to develop an ethical and moral system, here's the base place that we can come from. And so that's basically what I'm laying out in the book and proving on a step by step through 31 essays. Yeah, very, very cool. I haven't read your whole book yet. I, I ordered a copy as soon as it came out. I've read about half of it. Uh, it's my morning reading. You can figure out where I read it. I'm, I'm pretty impressed yep. with Reading it now. <laughs> yeah, right? I, I'm actually really impressed with it. Very well done. Um, mm -hmm. So that's kind of like some background. But what made you finally say, like, okay, I'm going to write this book? Because as a person who's written, like, half of three books, uh, I know it's difficult. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, what, what finally made you make that decision? Like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take this step. Because people think, like, you just turn out a book. You know, it, it, it's it's right. a lot more work than most people realize. Well, this was about, I would say this is probably about two years in the works in terms of, of writing various ideas down and, and trying to structure it. I think that when it really, really came to me was, you know, the last essay in there is where I coined the term crypto savage. And what had happened over the past two years is that I had started to see the emergence of a new culture as this old one collapsed. I was starting to see this cycle happen, and I believe that it's a cycle that that always happens with cultures. It's part of the decline of cultures. We often talk about the decline of civilizations, right? The decline yep. of Rome, all of this. Less talked about is the emergence during that decline of what would then become the next paradigm. Hmm. And that's a very, that's, if you miss that, then you're really missing the path, especially if you're in a decadent age when you're in the decline of a civilization. If you only look at the decline, And you don't look at the emergence of what came next and what, because a new paradigm obviously arose after the fall of Rome. I mean, we're, we're living after like five or six of these evolutions happening. And so I saw this, I saw this occurring and I saw that whatever emerges is going to be based first on a very individualistic, very decentralized ideal. It's getting harder and harder and harder to hold masses of people and move them in any given direction. Um, as that happens with every declining civilization, every decadent age. People lose ethics, they lose morals, they lose religion. And when you don't have those things to, to fall back on, where is your guidepost? And so that's why I finally said, okay, well, if I'm going to keep talking about this subject of this new emerging culture, certainly the ideas that are coming off things like the blockchain and cryptocurrency, off decentralization, we're in a whole new age when it comes to communication as well. And if I want to empower the individual, I believe that what's coming requires an individual revolution. I think that's the most powerful thing that can, that can happen. I don't think it's about going into the streets. I don't think it's about organizing people into groups. Although, of course, people cooperating in groups is that's what we do, right? But it's sure. cooperating as equals. It's not organizing people into some hierarchy and saying, well, only this hierarchy can accomplish our goals. I don't believe that. I believe that individual actors acting in the free market with some fundamental basis and some understanding of basic definitions can accomplish the same thing. And I think we're seeing it in concrete terms with 
as I said, with the blockchain and cryptocurrency. Yeah, because for all of the hype from the media and all of the hysteria that you see in social media about you know this group and that group marching in the street, the people making the biggest impact do not have time to march in the street right now. That's right. That's right. They're out doing things. They're out building the next platform. They're out founding another business. They're out putting together groups that are going out and doing something instead of bitching about something. And it's interesting, though, I want to back up a second, though. What you were talking about there with the, the, the decline of cultures, I've never really thought about that way before. So I was thinking about that, what you were saying, in the context of the American Revolution. And, and we always think about the American Revolution, and, I mean, I think the Declaration of Independence is one of the most anarcho-sounding documents I've ever heard. Whether people oh, it's, com- it's complete. <laughs> it's the yeah. most libertarian and, and anarcho document that's probably ever been written. I agree. Honestly. And I guarantee you that when King George Herbert was going on, he referred to these rebel- rebels over here as anarchists. That there was a word sure. that was 100%. used, right? But what 100%. I was thinking about when you were saying that is something, you know, we hear all of the technical reasons, the economic reasons, the... Uh, logical reasons that the colonists would break away from from Great Britain. We don't really think about the cultural divide that occurred and why that occurred. So if you think about it, you had about 100 years, 125 years of really having a, a presence and a civilization being built in this, what they called New World. And in that New World, the culture was entirely different, especially with something like a class divide. Like if you were still living in the United Kingdom in, or I should say Great Britain, in 1770, and you were a serf, well, you still weren't going to own land, right? And you were not going to enter that merchant class. And that was part of the culture. It wasn't just the the order, the feudal order. It was the culture. It was an accepted culture. Well, people came here and went, you mean I can just, like, I can have that over there? And, you know, we can debate the ethics of that, but I'm talking about what happened. And, and these people developed an entirely different culture. And if you think about it that way, then the, the Revolutionary War was inevitable because the cultures were no longer uh, conducive to working within each other in their framework. Right. One, one had to either dominate the other or both had to go their separate ways. And what's interesting is the culture of Great Britain and the decline of the, the British Air Empire that you know, came after that dramatically got more a lot not perfectly the same but much more like the culture that we created that caused us to leave it was that evolution you're talking about this is right and that's the last so basically what you that 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 idea that axiom is is what forced me and i will say forced but it forced me to sit down and and put this book together and it actually i i discussed that axiom and the mechanism of it in uh well one i've got a a video series called the ascendant project that i did last year that's about eight hours long that really goes into how that whole cycle works but the last two essays in my book self-ownership is about that and the idea like you hit on such a key and important thing there and that is that and the reason why i use the term crypto savage is that i'm saying savage as versus civilian a civilian is when you're in a culture a civilian, it comes from the word civis, which is someone who lives in the city. It's a Latin term. And it, it's basically the people who are in your culture. To you, the other people who share your culture are the civilians. And the people who don't share your culture are the savages, which comes from the word sauvage. It's, fr- it's French. It even goes back even further. But the root is basically it's for the wilds, the wilderness, the forest. And, and the crypto savage is the hidden Savage. So it's someone who looks like a civilian to you, but they're really operating within, uh, they're operating on a different culture. And the idea is that it's the influence of the savage 
that changes the culture, as you described. It's the, it's the interplay between a new culture getting introduced into the old culture and how does it synthesize in there? Which changes which? And what generally happens is that when a more advanced culture, and when I say advanced, I mean a culture that is better able to, uh, to create abundance and order out of a given environment meets an opposing culture that's, that's inferior in that regard. Usually either the opposing culture is de- decimated or it's, it's somehow absorbed mm-hmm. into the new culture. But, it, but it's absorbed and the elements that work are sort of scattered through it. So this is, this is cultural evolution. And what I see is that all of these things, and it's all the things that you're doing, Jack, it's all the things that are that that, that we're doing on our side. And like you say, it, w- people are coming at it from so many different angles, but they're all crypto savages. Yes. It's all part of a greater crypto savage, this hidden culture that's that's inside, but it, that does every single thing better in this environment. And there's no way that the old culture can survive it. It just can't survive it. Oh, I, I completely agree because it can't adapt. That's right. Because it's stuck in what it consider, considers being civilized. That's the other you know word that comes out of that civilian. That's civil, civilized. Yes. Like it's, exactly. it's not civilized to do that. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't civilized to run away and shoot officers in the head from 150 yards in the American Revolution. But it damn well worked, right? So, That's right. so like. We're, instead of using violence this time, which I believe was necessary at that time for that evolution to go forward, we're using technology, and we're using, I think, the component of the crypto-savagery at a higher level than was being done at the time, because it was clear who the rebels were or the anarchists were, however you wanted to term them if you were the, the loyalists at the time of the American Revolution. It is not clear who we are, except for those of us like yourself and I to stand up and go, here I am, and I'm going to do it to you, and I don't give a damn if you don't like it. There are there are far more people out there that are just doing it and using resources like we provide and getting it done than there are people putting their hands up. And you're right, you wouldn't recognize them. I remember one time, uh, with permission, I posted a picture, and it was like a collage of like 20 of my friends that all are self-proclaimed anarchists. And, you know, they're holding their kids, and they're doing homeschooling, and they're tending the garden. And I had at the top of the thing, it was a picture of like, these idiots in the streets burning shit and tearing shit down and beating stuff up. This is what they call anarchists. This is what an anarchist looks like. But you won't see that. When you look at that person, right. well, there's no possible way that person's an anarchist. Right. Okay, great. Glad you think that. And that. And I do believe we're growing in numbers, and I believe that the, there's a force multiplier in the systems that are put in place. And you use that word a lot. I use that word a lot. It's part of why I love permaculture, systems thinking. And the, the, the power of that is when you build systems, sometimes like you have, okay, you have your flat-out crypto, uh, crypto savage. You have all these other, like, minor, I used to call them, like, minor crypto savages participating in the system. Mm-hmm. They don't even know that's what they're doing yet. Right? Mm-hmm. They're just kind of sucked into it. Since the system is designed, when they touch it, they magnify it. Well, I would, I, you know, I would say to go back a little bit to the to the revolution. I think it's I think it's a huge analog to what's going on right now. You know, I, we do to, obviously we see the revolutionary war and there was violence, but you have to take into consideration that the Declaration of Independence was not a declaration of war. Absolutely, and in, and in fact, had the king said, "Okay, you can go," 
uh, but let's sit down and negotiate something out on this thing so that there isn't war, as opposed to just sending an army, there necessarily wouldn't have had to have been war. But well, I think, that think the, about that. The, the people that signed the declaration would have been overjoyed if that would have been the result. Absolutely. And that, that was their desired result, right? That would have been the optimum result. You know, and the other thing to consider is that even at that time, if you're talking about crypto savages, you know, the founding fathers, when they would write, you, you look at like, even, even after the war, you look at like the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, those guys were writing with pseudonyms. You know, like it, they understood the crypto savagery as well. It was hard. There would be no way for a British soldier, even quartered in someone's house, to really tell if that person was a royalist or if perhaps they were giving information to, to the uh, Revolutionary Army. There's really no way to tell. And I think that when you reach that point, which is the point that I do think that we're at, you know what I mean? And 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 obviously the big places where this is going to, the big issues, I do believe, I believe obviously it's cryptocurrency because we're living in a time when the banks control everything. But I think it's going to be a lot of people who, as soon as, soon as there is so, are some real markets and people are selling, I believe that small scale, Small-scale, high-yield agriculture, like what you do and what you teach people how to do and what many of your listeners do, that, that is going to be a massive flashpoint for, for this whole thing. Because when there are markets that are outside of the federal regulations, outside of state regulations, and already we see it, and people can sell raw milk, people can sell organic produce, but that's not been approved by the government, and they can sell it with cryptocurrency, those people, because they're going to crack down on cryptocurrency, they're going to crack down on those same markets as well. And food is going to be the, the first market. And so I believe that that is going to be a major flashpoint for, for this because the other people who, who you, like you say, are just bystanders are going to look and be like, wait, what's the problem? This person is selling organic tomatoes and the feds are coming after them? Like, no, there's a huge problem here. Yeah, it's 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 going to get to the point where it's almost up there with jacking around with Native Americans. Like, if you notice, mm -hmm. like, they never, like, that's a, that is a wheel that a politician will not touch. We are not going to do anything that would take anything away from a, a reservation or something like that because right. they know they're going to get slaughtered. And I don't know if it'll be quite to that level, but I think it'll get there because more and more people are, are coming into touch with this and they're participating in it on some levels. Like I said, kind of that second tier that's somewhere between the two. Yeah. And then when you get that flashpoint, and then the, I think the other thing that's going to happen with that is, like, there's big news out this week. I'm sure you heard it, that the IRS is tracking Bitcoin. They bought some software from some that's company, right, yeah. right? Well, I, like, I keep saying, like, I think Bitcoin long term is kind of going to be, if anything, the gold of cryptocurrency. Right. It's going to be a store of value. It is not going to be the thing that enables the transactions of the ecosystems at a high level. There are going to be, you know, okay, go ahead and get any sniffing software you want. And if you want to try following a token that was multiplexed, right. Godspeed. Go ahead. See if you can do that. Cause well, they, they can't win the arms race in no. this regard. Like, that's that. There's, if, as soon as there's demand to beat whatever it is that they've got to have countermeasures. Honestly, the, this is where the, and this is a very important point, right? That as we reach the, you know, even the governments now are like, it's all about cyber warfare. It's all about yeah. cyber warfare. It's all about cyber warfare. What's different about, it's not even cyber warfare. It's just tools, right? But what's different about, if we want to call it cyber warfare, that has never happened before, maybe since the beginning of, of civilization itself, is that 
up until this point, the military had the best the, and the capability to um, to acquire to, and to conscript. Re- if they had to, they would conscript the best, right? But but, to, but I'm talking from a technological standpoint, okay. right? They had the ability to acquire the best and the brightest because you know a Werner von Braun. There's no when he's around in the 40s. There's no private demand for rockets. No, okay, yeah, gotcha. you get what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 but, yeah. But when it comes to or, or or any of them, Uzi, Kalashnikov, like name off the names, Huey, you know what I mean? Like name off the names, and you see, you know, it was all military. Even the Wright brothers, the first sale that they made was to the U.S. Army. Mm. That was their first sale, sure, because there was no private market. But software. Software? We already see that the private market has the best software. The Googles and the Apples. It's it's always been private. The people who are working, as we saw with this Vault 7 release, the people who are working in-house for the CIA and the NSA and whatnot, they're bullshit. Even in this example that you're you're presenting, yeah. they had to go and purchase this software yeah. from the private yeah. sector. Yeah, from some company in Switzerland, I think, is where they're located or something so, like that. So it's like, if the government thinks that they're going to win an arms race with the private sector, and yet they have to go to the private sector to get the things, to get the arms themselves, come on, you're getting the secondhand shit. <laughs> they can't win the arms race. Yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree with you. Um, there, there is no way for them to do it because it's we're, th- this side of the coin is way too adaptive. Like oh, like because th- think of how long they worked their ass off to even try to get their arms around Bitcoin, and you're sitting well, and going. Think about how long. Think about how long it takes for them to acquire funding. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It t- they have to go. They have to figure out that there's a problem, and they've got to go in. They've got the director of the IRS has to go in, talk to the senators, say we need this amount of money. They got to put together a bill. They got to do all of this. On the other hand, you've got Juan Bennett and Filecoin who just raised like a hundred, who raised a hundred and eighty million dollars in sure. one hour. Yeah. In one hour of yeah. of their initial coin offering, you can't compete with that. And they'll say American citizens, you can't you can't participate in these ICOs anymore. And you're like, well. I'm sorry, you guys don't understand that it's as simple as an IP address that we can. That's right. You know, I mean, like, like, okay, I know that works for you on the Dow Jones and and what have you, but it doesn't work for you here anymore. And what they should do is they should just stop, because the more they resist, the faster this goes. They can't stop. Yeah, they can't stop. They have a there's a there's about six reasons for that, but yeah, you're right, they can't. But they should. You see what I'm saying? Like yes. it is their very resistance that that creates more. It's it, it's it, in a far different way. It's like Antifa and the white nationalist movement. Like right. if if one showed up and no one else did, they wouldn't That's get right. anywhere near as much bang for the buck. But when when you see the government going after Bitcoin, what that does to everybody that started to dabble in cryptocurrency at all, that's just holding a few bitcoins or something like that, or a few thousand bucks, they say, well, why are you messing with this? And it makes them say, "Well, how do I how do I solve this new problem?" That's right. Well, let me tell you about Zcash. Let me tell you about Dash. Let me let me tell you about all of these things that actually make your currency anonymous. Let me show you how this wallet works that interacts with this system. Or, hey, did you know about Swarm City? And you can actually have a whole ecosystem within here. And they have no idea this even exists yet. And by the time they do, we'll just do something else. And, and the person would have never asked that question. They would have just bought. You know, a couple thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin and let it sit there if they didn't take those steps. 
Well, you think, you know, every every law and new regulation creates demand to skirt the regulation, right? You think about H&R Block. You know what I mean? People yeah. going and they're filing their tax returns. They're going to H&R Block because they're trying to get every deduction that they possibly can. But if the government just had a simple flat tax and it wasn't as much as it, you know, they weren't charging as much as they are and they didn't put in all of these regulations, there would be no demand for somebody to help you skirt the regulation. Absolutely. And, and so in this Absolutely. case, you're dealing with the same thing, except the difference is there's no barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. That's what it's very hard for people who are not in the world of software and technology to understand is that there is absolutely no barrier to entry for three guys. And all of these blockchains have been pretty much one guy and then a group that follows after of, of developers. But there's no barrier to entry for three guys sitting at home who know some things about who maybe they even have degrees in mathematics. Maybe they're really good at cryptography and they're sitting around and they're like, hey, let's make a new blockchain and release it. And it's and it solves this next problem. It's the next weapon. There's no barrier to entry for them. Well, I mean, even the skill is not really a barrier of entry because the skills can be acquired largely for nothing. That's right. And even if you want some level of professional kind of guidance in it, the cost of that is is infinitesimally small compared to you know a liberal arts degree or whatever the hell like bitterness studies or whatever the hell they call it now, (laughs) right? So let's kind of move so we don't go totally on on the currency thing. Let's talk more about like. The, the stuff you've got with your book. So let's talk a little bit, if we can, we'll back up, the significance of self-ownership to libertarianism. Ah, yes. Well, I, it, it is the core. It is the core of the idea of liberty. The question is, the question that we have to ask when we are organizing systems is, and, and I start out with this, the very first words of my book are basically a concession that, look, Every human organ, organizational system that has gained even a little bit of traction works. Like whether you're talking about pharaonic Egypt, whether you're talking about feudal Japan, whether you're talking about Soviet Russia, we may not think that those are the best situations that we would like to live under, but look, they all worked. If what we, the definition of work is, they kept enough people alive to at least replace the population over time. Every single one of them worked. And for some people, for the Pharaoh or Joseph Stalin or the shoguns of Japan, those systems worked very, very, very well. Very well. The question that we have to ask ourselves, and I think that this is the ultimate libertarian question, is what is the system that we are really trying to get at? Like, what what, what is the, the metric? What is the measuring stick? And I do believe that it is that pursuit of happiness. It's what system provides the greatest opportunity for the largest number of people to peacefully pursue their own version of living well. What is that system? And that at the core of it is, it is self-ownership. It is respect for property. It's to say, the very first property is my property, is the property of myself, is my thoughts and my feelings that then becomes labor, which I mix with natural with natural resources, which then creates property, physical property, which I can then dispose of as I want to. I can trade it peacefully. I can just throw it away if I want. I can just say I don't want it anymore and just abrogate my claim to it. But it all goes back to self-ownership. And if you look at all those examples that I gave, Pharaonic Egypt, slaves, the idea of self-ownership, out the window. Those slaves don't own themselves. The Pharaoh owns them. 
You take you go to Soviet Russia, certainly any socialist state because they tell you right up front, well, there's no private property. Well, if there's no private property, then they're denying your right to make a claim on your labor. Because if, the, if private property is created by mixing labor with a natural resource, so if you mix your labor with a natural resource and that doesn't become your private property, then what they're saying is that you don't own your labor. We, the party or the state, we own your labor. If they own your labor, they own your body. So these are... These, this is where it goes, you can go backwards and then you can go forward. So we can definitely go backwards in all of these scenarios and see, okay, these were societies that did not respect self-ownership. They did not have a principle of self-ownership. What makes, ostensibly, what makes our culture great? The core fundamental idea is an idea of self-ownership. I think until maybe the last hundred years, it has not been articulated but for at least a thousand years, maybe going, you know, further, because I think that I think that this is the basic message that that even Jesus is is saying in the New Testament is this idea that like you are an individual, you know, he says something at the Last Supper when he's he's uh, you know washing the disciples' feet and he says that the master is not greater than the slave or the master is not greater than the servant. He says correct, correct, yes, and that and it's that we've embodied this idea. For many millennia in Western culture, that there's something in us, there's something in us, all of us, it's a mystery what it is, but it is that thing that thinks, it is that thing that feels, whether you call it a soul, whether you call it the individual, whatever it is, it's this mysterious thing, but in all of us, it's equal. We may be born differently, we may be born as men or women, we may be born black or white, short or tall you know, skinny or fat, whatever it is. We may be born, uh, you know, a Greek Adonis, or we may be born with some sort of disability that makes our life that much more difficult. But those things are different. But what's not different is that core, that, that, that kernel that's inside of us, that's beyond thought, that's beyond feeling, but is that which feels, that which thinks, the I, the, the divine individual. And so we've embodied this idea that's what the idea behind all men are created equal. It's that we're all created from that divine spark. And so that, if we go to that place, this is the place that our culture has been begging us to go to for the last 2,000 years. It's been begging us to see in others that divine spark and to say, you know what, I have to organize myself that way. If I can, it's the golden rule. Yes. If I, if I can't be owned, you can't be owned. And when we operate off the golden rule, guess what? We don't need laws. We don't need governments. We don't need any of these things. These are all workarounds. So it's like starting from the base. And I think that that's where libertarians, that's where we can go to. It's something that we can go to that it's like, it's not religion, but it's the basis of religion. It's not government, but it's the basis, basis of government. government. Yes. And like government doesn't have to be a state. Government can be self-governance. That's, right. that's um, right. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot you cover there. I think... Part of the, the concept of equality, because, again, you're back to definitions. I think depending on how you use that word, it can be a very good thing or a very bad thing. I think for if we, if we judge equality based on, you know, what do you have, then equality is the worst thing in the world for a civilization if we're trying to make everybody have the same thing. If yeah. I took away every bit of property that everybody owned and distributed it equally, but had a respect, okay, now this is your property, do with it as you will, 
in a couple of years, the, the structure would look pretty much the way that it was, right? You're going to have people with very little and have people with a lot because... Or, or worse. Or worse, worse right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That you're gonna, it's not going to remain in stasis of equally yeah. divided because if you let things alone, you end up with some level of a meritocracy. That's right. Um, but when we look at equality of, if we use the right definitions of words, that one thing that makes society equal would be self-ownership. If... It doesn't matter if you're born a dwarf or an Adonis or a, right. you know me or you or whatever. If we all are seen equal in that we have a right to ourselves and self-ownership and a right to our property and a right to express our morality as we see fit as long as we kind of obey that golden rule. And even more so, I'd say like the flaw I always have with the golden rule is it doesn't work when you find a masochist. Right? right. Like, right. So, so you, you like you, you, actually to, to simply... Like, to me, the real golden rule is the non-aggression principle, right? So I should live my life as I choose. Vin should li li live his life as he chooses. We'll have overlap wherever we want when we want to work sure. together. But when you want to do something else, if I have a respect for your right to your own thing, and I let, I, you know, I didn't like the word let, because it's as though I have the, the any sort of perceived authority. I simply do not interfere with what I, like, I go, I don't agree with that. I don't think Vince should do that, but it's none of my freaking business. Right. Then you have true equality. Well, uh, or, or perhaps it is your business, Jack. You know what I mean? Like, perhaps you see that my actions somewhere down the road could have a negative influence on you or someone that you care for or okay. just some 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 generation in the future or even somebody that I care for and I don't see it. Yeah. I think that I think then there is a point not for you to regulate my behavior, but certainly that's where the dialogue has to stay open and that's where we have to this is where the cultural piece goes in. This is where it becomes sure. very important for us to communicate with each other. And I think to to ex, to extend the golden rule and I think the golden rule is is um It's, it's sort of a version one, right? Yeah. Like, it's yeah. again, it's an embodied idea. It's somebody seeing something and saying, oh, okay, okay, I think this is kind of the rule. I think what it kind of is a, a more eloquent way of, of saying it, and something that I use in the book, is the idea that we all have preferences, and those preferences are going to be different amongst all of us, right? But the, the principle that underlies self-ownership is you are entitled to to manifest your preferences in the behavior that you want, so long as your preferences do not interfere with my pursuit. So it's the pursuit of happiness, right? Sure. If you're pursuing happiness, and this is the thing about the masochist, right? If you're pursuing happiness and my pursuing happiness both line up together, then we can say, okay, no problem, we go forward. Yeah. If you're, if you're pursuing happiness and my pursuing happiness, our self-interest are opposed, which sometimes happens, Then we get into a, a realm of, okay, how do we resolve this conflict? How do we resolve it without violence? Violence is all, because violence is the ultimate, is nature's conflict resolution strategy. Like, that's what violence is there for. Certainly violence between species, uh, between members of the same species, mm -hmm. right? So, like, you take, like, a ram or a deer or an elephant, You know, they have a claim, they have a conflict over territory. They go at it. They've been going at it for so long. You take rams. Those horns have evolved over millions of years for the sole purpose of property conflict, right? You're in my territory. We're going to go at it. We're going to have violence. We're more evolved than that. So violence is always there. It's always, it's always there as a means of settling conflict, and we use it. It's what the state is. 
the state is, are the horns of the ram. Absolutely. That, you know, that's why the, the rabbi, you know, blows, the Jewish rabbi blows into the shofar, which is the horn of a ram. Like, they're embodying it right there. We are the state. This is the ram's horn. Like, we, we control the violent arbitration like we decide at the end. But if we want to, if we say, okay, self-ownership, initiation of violence, non-aggression principle, if I respect the self-ownership of another person, then I've got to take all the steps before we get to violence. And you know what? Every conflict, especially if we have a society where there's a demand for sort of preventative things, all of this where we're really looking to solve and arbitrate disputes non-violently, if there's a demand for it and you leave the free market open, somebody's going to figure it out. Somebody's going to figure out the best way to do it. And, and again, it goes back to the blockchain. We're figuring these things out. We're figuring out how to determine what belongs to who and how to, how to uh, you know, arbitrate between these, these various differences between people. So it's like that's basically where what self-ownership is about. It's about how can we start from base one, create a society where we don't need a state, we don't need violence. We can solve these claim conflicts by just – I don't know what the answer is ultimately. Sure. Let, me, let me put it like that. I don't know what the answer is, but I also don't know what the answer is to the next fastest iPhone. But Correct. somebody does, and if we allow there to be a demand in the market for it, and this person can make some money by creating the next fastest iPhone, it'll get created. It'll get created. Or if they create the next thing that actually, like, everybody goes, I don't want an iPhone anymore, then then right. that will happen, right? Like, right. well, that'll never happen. Yeah, check Kodak out and see how they're doing. I mean, like, right, like, that is a natural evolution. One of the things I want to back up to, though, because I think, like, we're dancing around it. Okay, let's go. It's 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 right there. And it's a change that was made in the Declaration of Independence. It was originally kind of in there as life, liberty, and property. The reason that word came out is because if there was Twitter at the time, and you used the word property, speaking between the southern and northern colonies, you would have had hashtag triggered, right? right. <laughs> and, and, and because of that, like it's almost like the wrong word is in our psyche, because property mm. denotes ownership but they had to find a way around it they didn't piss everybody off and everybody walked away from the table politics being the art of the possible right mm -hmm. but if we actually think about it that way life liberty and pop property and if, if we didn't have if we had not had to deal with the problem of slavery in the colonies at the time that would have been the word and i think the entire psyche the way you look at it would be different because then you're back to ownership And, and obviously, I think the ownership of another human being is just the epitome of the state. I don't even think you can do it without a state. Um, well, the thing is, you can't own another human being. This is something that I get into, right? Like, okay. if we're using the definition of ownership, right, you can't, because you can't interact with another person's thoughts or feelings, you can't own another human being, which means that the only way that you can keep – so on all of the things that we have as property – We can easily and nonviolently say, this is my property, and we have an easy way to arbitrate it, right? Like if somebody comes and they, they show up at your homestead and they're like, actually, I don't know who the hell you are. This was deeded to me 50 years ago. Your land actually belongs to me. Here's the, here's the title. Here's the deed. We have a means of you going back through public records, through provenance, You go back to the public records, you go back to the property records, you go all the way back. You show that the line that goes to your deed that's all certified 
is completely like legal and it goes beyond where his is. Correct. Boom, done. Easy. Nonviolent. Yep. Easy. Yep. Right? But when we're talking about things that cannot be owned, that are unownable, which is the reason why part of my book is defining what can be owned, what can't be owned, one of those things is a human being. The only way that you can maintain that claim is violence. Absolutely. That's the only way. So it's not just human beings, though. What's interesting is that it's there's other things, too. For instance, something we don't think about, electromagnetic spectrum, mm-hmm. right? The radio frequencies. You can't build a wall. You could build a wall around your homestead. You could take your property, your jewelry, your gold. You could put it in a safe. You could prevent other people from getting at it. The government can't prevent me from transmitting on 97.1 FM. Without violence. That's the only way they can do it is with violence. Exactly. So that that tells you that's the embodiment of electromagnetic spectrum is unownable, which anybody who understands electromagnetic spectrum – understands that the color red, if you look around and you see the color red, you are experiencing the electromagnetic spectrum in the visible light range of that spectrum. And that exact same electromagnetic spectrum at higher frequency is radio. Yeah. No, that's the shot. And like a hybrid then would be water because I can dig a hole and have it fill up with water on my property. Right. Uh, But the government can come in and say that's not my water under a water rights law. Um, but water right. really is a very difficult thing to own, other than if it's stationary. That's right. As so, soon so as it like moves, you could, now you got to yes. use violence to defend it. Yeah, you could. So you could own the land that a river runs through. Yeah. But you couldn't own the you, and you could take water out of the river and yeah. store it. But that as that water once it moves off your property, it's no longer yours. Correct. Right, so so there are these. So water is a great one, and you see that water creates a lot of conflicts, and it always has Absolutely. because it has a unique property. But here's another one, Jack: intellectual property. Mm. Because because once an idea is out, so let's take a trademark. Like <laughs> McDonald's, McDonald's can't make a boundary and stop me from drawing the golden arches and putting it on the side of my building. They can't do it. The only way that a copyright, that a trademark, that a patent can be enforced is with violence or the threat of violence because an idea is unownable once it's in somebody else's head. Once I see a logo, if I can draw that logo, you don't own it. (laughs) No, it's it's absolutely true. And, again, it's something that, that you look at. I want to back up, though, because you hit on the water thing, right? So, like, water has historically caused a lot of conflicts, Mm -hmm. only where it's scarce. That's right. So scarcity is the other, like, agitator in all of this, right? So there were times in history when when nations fought wars and men spilled blood over salt and freaking pepper. Oh, yes. Right? Have you seen a war over salt and pepper lately? And, And the answer is no. And it's reasonably abundant anywhere in the world. So... The, the the thing the free market creates is abundance, and except in one vein, and this is important. Okay, right? I, I, it's an, it's a very important point because one of the things that people like to bring up now is this idea of post scarcity, right? Yeah, it's very uh, it's the the people who are watching the Zeitgeist videos and what's the other one, the Venus Project. Oh, I know what you're talking this. about. Yeah, there's and, one more, and it they're. Yeah, they're out there in the world. Right. They're t- but they're talking about this idea of post scarcity, and it's yeah. it's just a play on Marxism. But here's so, yes, people have fought over uh, salt and over pepper, but I'm going to go back to the ram example, right? Yeah. 
So here you have these sheep. They're living in an area where there's abundant grass, abundant water, abundant everything, right? Being in a particular piece of territory is not really all that important to them. It's not like they're ever going to run out of food or water. They're totally fine. When those rams go and they battle, they're not actually battling over the physical territory. No, they're not, yeah. They're battling over the ability to mate yep. with the, the females that the are use. in that particular area, the ewes. So, but it's not even actually that. What they're battling for is the same thing that human beings are battling for, particularly men, but women do it too. And that is a position on a social hierarchy. Mm. Because whoever's at the top of the social hierarchy gets the most mating opportunities. You think about the king and his ability to have the women that he wants as opposed to the beggar on the street. True. Right? The top of the social hierarchy gets you that, and that's true all advanced social animals that have these interspecies battles, that's what they're all about. From a peacock to, a, to dude, pheasants are crazy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. they, you could, you could name them. But besides that, those are like herbivores. They're peaceful animals, right? Yeah. But they develop these structures to be these amazing fighters against members of their own, their own species, just like us. So when we talk about abundance, the one thing that's never abundant the one thing that's always scarce and the reason why there will always be human conflict and the reason why ideas like self-ownership are so important, no, no matter how much physical abundance you create, the top of the hierarchy is always scarce. And with animals as basal, it's all about breeding on many right. levels, right? It is a social structure, but that's what drives it. With human beings, yes. it's really more about psychology and authority. Yes. You could see it with cliques in high schools, right? Yes. You could even, you could examine a high school clique and, and you go to any clique and, and you actually can define the, the, the members of that clique equally to the level you could define the members of a lion pride before you see it. it it's it's, it's sure. that obvious. Well, and think about what we, think about what we do, how we embody this idea of a scarce top of the social hierarchy. You go to those high school cliques. Look at this. Prom king and prom queen. Yeah. There's yeah. one. There's one. Yeah. Right? That's always going to be scarce because one, you can't make an abundance. You can't say, okay, there's enough prom king and prom queen for everybody. It yeah. stops being prom king and prom queen. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, part of, the, part of that is letting go of that, that concept, right? But we That's... can't. We, we can't. I don't believe that we can. Really? I, I think, yeah, I think that the hierarchy is built as far as because. Because here, and here's the thing about the hierarchy. I mean, we're talking about these animals that our ancestors diverged from. But like, you even go back to lobsters. Lobsters have the same yeah. sorts of endocrine systems, and they'll fight for a in a dominance hierarchy. These these structures are deep, deep, deep embedded in our biology and our evolutionary history. Well, it's an evolutionary and, advantage, especially yes. in a more like even moving toward a more voluntary society. You're going more tribal. Well, then. Having some structure within that tribe, maybe it's different than the structure with the state, has major advantages because people kind of find the place that they do the most good for the yes. whole. Because both of us hate collectivism, and I, I'm sure you're not a fan of socialism as a system, but what I've always yeah. said is socialism as an adjective doesn't bother me at all. Right. right? So, I mean, that's kind of a, a key difference between, like, the, the view of the anarcho-capitalist uh, uh, anarcho and the anarcho uh, communist, like if you ask an anarcho uh, uh, an, an, an anarcho capitalist, can we be anarcho communist within an anarcho capitalist society? Sure, 
No yeah, problem. Absolutely. You can do all the socialism, all the con as long as you don't make anybody participate. That you can have all you want. You ask the same question to the anarcho-communists. Oh, absolutely not. It's not right. inclusive at all, and it's it's kind of. A, I'll tell you why I think it really is, and, and I think nobody wants to really admit it on the other side because they know it won't work. That's right. In their no, advantage, 100%. they know it will fail without a hundred percent forced participation. Because the other system's better, but I think there's a fear that, well, I'll be left behind. I won't have a place in that hierarchy where I, I kind of think everybody has a place of value if they're willing to work for it and find it. Well, I think you've hit on it, man, and, and, I, and this is something that I, I focus on in the book for, for two essays, two consecutive essays, is this idea that the wonderful thing about human beings that makes us different from rams, that makes us different from deer, is that... We are able to, and our, our, our world is a prime example of it, we are able to abstract and create new hierarchies that never existed before that we can then compete for. Mm. So it's like, you know, they recently had here in Vegas, they had um, eSports. I don't know if you're up on this, but this is dudes who are playing video games professionally. Like, these guys are playing I've Street heard of Fighter. It. From, they're playing Street Big Fighter. Big money. money. I've seen it on, like, weird channels on cable, and, like, there's huge crowds cheering and shit. And they're, they're all jacked. They look like Neo jacked in with a headset. And all. Yeah, I've seen it. Yes. Yeah. So, so here's the deal. That's a brand new hierarchy that sprung out of nowhere. And here, the kids who were playing, they could never have been in the hierarchy of, uh, of the Vikings. Sure. They could never have been a Viking warrior. These are like little nerdy dudes, you know what I mean? They, they couldn't be in the hierarchy of the football team at the local high right. school, right? Yeah. Right. But, but, and this is what the anarcho communists are, this is what the communists and socialists in general are missing. That if you leave the free market open, and even that even the, we don't have a completely free market now, but look at how easy it is for people to find a hierarchical structure that they can actually actually realistically compete for the top slot no i get it no it's 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 very much i wrote a book called the real truth about money just an ebook long before cryptocurrency came out and and the way i explained money if it's left to the free market is we think of money in our economy like two teams playing basketball and there's only two goals and there's only mm -hmm. so many players, and they all have to shoot at those goals and only making that go if you really look at value and value for value exchange Money, capital, etc., is unlimited. It is only limited by the, the ability to create value. And it's like having the ability to – it's interesting because this just pushed me right back there, even though this is like nine years ago. It's mm -hmm. like being able to go out to that basketball court and erect your own goal that only right. you take shots at. But it's up to you to convince somebody that there's value to it. Right. But you can have as many goals as you want, as many balls as you want, and it doesn't even need to be a goal. It could be a golf hole. It, could, it doesn't matter what it is. There are all these different places. and So you're, what you're doing is you're taking like the next evolution in that thought to those actually create new hierarchies. So yeah, well, this is, this is what's crazy, Jack, because when I said at the beginning of this, introducing myself, that it's like a lot of people would be surprised that my journey through being a high-end straight male escort, like the, the most expensive and probably the most famous in the world. I mean, the show that I'm on is, is in like 30 international markets now. So, and it was on for six seasons, but... I wrote a book back in 2011 called Tao of the Gigolo that was about the revelations that I had about exactly what you're talking about, which is value. And the idea that it was uh, – people were incredulous. If you go back and you look at the <laughs> early – yeah, if you go back and you look at the New York Times, the Daily Beast, all these people looking at, the, at our show, they were like, this is not real. <laughs> Women will not pay 
to go on dates with men. They will not do it. And my bank account speaks to it. Yeah. It just yeah. simply, it simply is real. Not only will they pay money, they will pay thousands and thousands of dollars every month on a recurring basis to do it. And you start to realize it's like, look, I have no product. I'm not promising or contracted to do any particular service. Yeah. And and what and the time that I spend with each woman is completely different. So it, it it took me into a place where I got deep and meditatively deep into the idea of what is value. Because you start to think, okay, obviously I'm providing something of value. And then it becomes, who do I become? What do I embody to be the type of person that someone would just want to spend a couple of hours with? And I think that when you start to think about that, that's what you do too, Jack. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because It's what we you, all do. Yes, because you embody the idea that you have so much value, not for even even more than what you do, but for who you are and the experiences that you've had in your life, that someone decides, I'm going to take an hour out of my day every day and listen to what Jack has to say. And the same thing for me, you know, two hours a week on my show, and I'm going to watch this dude just say his opinion on yeah. things because I value it. Well, and I bet you in, you know, your, your other walk of life, your attitude has to be exactly the same as you're discovering your attitude has to be with podcasting. Yes. There are 150 to 165,000 a day people that, that go, I'm going to check out what Jackson and listen to my show. There are probably a million people that have passed by over the years and said, this guy's an asshole, and I don't like him, and I will never <laughs> listen to him again. And my response is, good, I do not care. Fine. Right? right? Because exactly. I'm not here for you. I'm here for these people. If you ever decide you'd like to be part of this group, there's room for you. If you don't want to be, may the door not hit you where God split you and see you later. I'm done. I don't have any time to worry about you. And I'm sure as an escort, you have to have that same view. You, I could probably line up a bunch of women and say, I, I wouldn't let him pay me to go out with me. I don't care. Because I'm, I, have, I don't have the time. I don't have the time for everybody. But this goes back to the whole point that we were on there. And, and it goes back to how screwed up the education system is. Everybody can be brilliant at something. Exactly. And that is the, the biggest flaw in our education system. We are we are designing people to go into a hierarchy where their choices are limited in a society that should be evolving to a point where choice is unlimited. That's right. And and, and I do believe, and I think it was Einstein that says everybody's a genius at something. I, I and and it gets here's the thing. When you open up the free market, the more you open up the free market the more possible hierarchies you allow there to be. Now, I don't think you can ever open it. It wouldn't, doesn't really make sense that you could open it so that everybody could be at the top of their own hierarchy. But boring. I think that you, could, you, could, oh, you can open it enough that it, – because it, fundamentally, it doesn't matter that you're at the top of a hierarchy, right? It doesn't no. matter that you're at the top. What matters is that you feel that you have a legitimate chance to peacefully compete for the top of that hierarchy. Because that's what gives you meaning in your life. You don't get you don't get the meaning from being the top. No, no you get I, the I, meaning from competing for the top. I, I feel that it's not that everybody will be, but anyone can be at the top exactly. of a hierarchy. And exactly. some people don't even want to. There sure. are people that would much rather stay a lieutenant than become a general. That's right. That's okay, but they want a fair shake as a lieutenant. Right. That's right. And, and that's that's the key that they want something that they can have meaning and purpose in their life to, and, and and that's why I like your book because it all comes back again to self ownership. 
we are going long, but I want to talk about some of these things a little bit deeper. And I, I checked it. with the boss, and he's okay with it, uh, right? Because <laughs> I own my own shit, man. And I, you know, anyway, right? But one of, the, one of the big things that you talk about is, is the, the clash and the differences between collectivism and individualism. And that's a yes. big part of what we're talking about here. So say some stuff about that. Yeah, this is something that people have asked me. You know, the initial starting chapters are about defining collectivism and really helping people to understand what that is. And some people who have read the book are like, why exactly did you start with collectivism? But as as we start talking and as they see a little more of what's going on, collectivism is actually the, demolishing that is the first key thing that is necessary for anybody who wants liberty. And really the problem with collectivism, if we're talking about the vein of ownership and self-ownership, is that the claim of collectivism, so whether that's statism, whether that's the government, and it's funny, Jack, we just recently were both included on an email of somebody who was asking some questions, and they said they were talking about the roads and saying that the government owned the roads. Yeah, I actually, I actually covered property. that in yesterday's show, just so you know. I read your response on air. Oh, well, thank you for that. So yeah. that, so this is part of collectivism. It's the idea when when only individuals can think, only individuals can feel, therefore only individuals can labor. And property is created through the mixing of your labor with an unowned natural resource, whether that's putting a fence around your land, whether that's uh, mining some, some gold and fashioning it into jewelry, or just mining some gold, period, really, let's be real. Uh, that's how property is created. And, and individuals can transfer property between each other, but only individuals can make a claim. So, for instance, even if, the, even if you say the government owns the road, if there was ever a claim conflict about that road, so, for instance, if I said, no, the government doesn't own that road, that's on my land, and I go to court, the government doesn't show up because the <laughs> government can't make a claim. Who shows up is another individual human speaking on behalf of the government. Because only individuals can claim ownership. That's the proof that only individuals can. Because what I would say is, well, if the government owns it, let the government speak for itself. Don't send somebody here to speak for the government. Just let the government speak for itself, and then I'll give up my claim. That's all you got to do. Because it sounds to me like I'm the only human being here with the claim. Because even the attorney is not saying that he owns the road. Ah. Uh, uh, is he? No, he's not. He's saying that he's that he's speaking on behalf of the government. So I said, well, just let the government show up. Show me the government. That'd be another show, me the show, show them to me, right? Show, who, show me the individual that is the government and, and let, let the government say to me out of its own mouth, I own the road. Because until that time, I'm the only person in this room who's making a claim to, the, to owning the road. Right? And so this is very, very important when we're talking about Collect what collectivism fundamentally is, is it's individuals who use a smokescreen. It's the great and powerful Oz. What you'll often hear them say is they say, I'm a voice for the voiceless. Right? Well, I agree, because you're a voice for nothingness. Exactly. Because these things, the environment, the government, the people, the poor, the oppressed. I say, let the oppressed come. Let the oppressed tell me. Because these things don't exist. It's collectivism is a means for individual human beings to use a tricky smokescreen that's a hack in the human brain 
and that's indoctrinated through education to make claims to property on behalf of a fictitious entity and to then use that property as individuals. I, I completely agree, and I, I think what happens whenever you do this, and this is actually what I talked about when I covered this yesterday, was there's a cognitive dissonance that happens in people's heads because the, the, the natural question is, well, then if the government does, doesn't own the roads, how will we deal with you know transportation and, and reasonable ability to travel and things like that? And you, know, you can have that discussion. I think there's a lot of solutions, but what I've always tried to hold people back with first is, Can we at least get to the point of the morality of the issue before we worry about how we're going to fix it? Well, forget about the morality, right? Let's 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 get rid of the morality. Okay. Let's just let's just deal with the logic and rationality. Okay. Right? I, I don't, I'm not even demanding morality. I'm just saying, if we're going to talk about who will build the roads, well, we need to talk about those roads are going to be built by individuals. They're going to be built with equipment, right? Mm -hmm. Who owns the equipment? Does the government own the equipment? Clearly, the government can't own anything. It doesn't. It, it, they're two separate issues. Like, how will I do something? No, Or I agree. How, how will I agree. individuals get from point A to point B is a completely different discussion than does, is the government an entity, a, a physical entity that can actually own something? So let's. Those are two different things. I agree. So maybe making that a little more clear where morality does step in would be taxation. So sure. if you tell somebody tax is theft, right, no. They, and it's a cognitive dissonance because right. they can't see how will we be able to do fill in the blank if there is no system of taxation. However, right. if you actually ask them, is, is, is if I go to Vin Armani and say, I see that you made a half a million dollars this year, that's nice. I'm taking $100,000 away from you because you're blessed. And right. I can do good things with it, and I'm going to go do good things with your money, even if I'm doing it. Have I stolen Vin Armani's money? Right. Absolutely. Okay, so the fact that I'm an elected official, I'm given a badge, I'm given a title, doesn't change that moral reality that it's your property that you rightfully acquired at the expense of nobody else who did not participate in any way involuntarily, and I've taken it from you against your will. And the way that I took it from you is you're like, I'll beat your ass, Jack, and I put a gun in your head and said, no, you won't, give me the money. That's right. It. So they know that they can't actually argue the logic, the reasons, right. the intellectual nature that that is not theft. But the mind won't let them accept it because they've lived their whole life based on the concept that we need this and they can't see the solution. And what I've always tried to say is before we even discuss the solution, can we accept the, 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 the moral or intellectual reality here that this is theft? Because let's then the impetus is a, to do something about it. Let's take it a step further, right? Okay. Okay. We're, we're willing to accept that it's theft. So let's think about of all the solutions, right? If we've got this basket, these two baskets of possible solutions, and if you were going to pick from, if I said, okay, you can pick from basket A or basket B, but whatever you get out of that basket, that's going to be the solution and that's going to be how it's done relative to you. In basket A are a whole bunch of solutions that involve theft. <laughs> In basket B are a whole bunch of different solutions, but none of them involve theft. Okay, press your luck. Hmm. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. And no one would go, oh, let me pick from the death, death pile. Yeah, but that's because, what they do at, in, in practice. That's what people do every single day when they defend. well, they don't have. They feel like they don't have a choice. There is I think no basket ulti- Yeah, ultimately, what it is is it's Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, right. It's it's yeah. the slave on the plantation. Who says, yeah, it's way riskier for me to make try that underground railroad because, like, well, if I stick here and I rationalize in my head that there are some good parts to being a slave, at least, yeah, I'll work my ass off. You know, if I keep out of trouble, I won't get whipped. It'll be I might shit, even end up alive. in the hierarchy of the slaves. There you go. I might even end up a head slave, which is, I think, frankly, what I think a lot of Americans are struggling to become right now is like a – uh, a sh- uh, I've done podcasts called You Are Nothing But a Slave, and I have on the, the, the picture for the episode, it's a guy with a really nice dress shirt, and for his tie, it's a shiny chrome chain. And not like one you would wear on a date, Vin. I mean, a, 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 you know, something you'd tow a truck with, and he's that's tying it. it on like a necktie. And that's what I think people are doing. They're struggling to hierarchy within the slavery because it's better than the alternative in their head. So well, they don't know that there is an alternative, and I think that that's why the work that we do is very, very important. And it's – look, dude, it's hard. I know there are people listening right now who inside their stomachs are turning in knots. Oh, absolutely. Right? Their stomachs are absolutely turning in knots. I get it. This is hard. It's, it's the way that your stomach would be turning in knots if you heard that Harriet Tubman – if you were a slave – and you heard that Harriet Tubman was coming by tomorrow and that you could possibly go with her and, and make an attempt on going on the Underground Railroad. And you might that's have to leave way. some of your family behind, too. I mean, and that's, that's a truth with this, too. I mean, I never said it was easy. I've had, I've had several different law enforcement officers on who are, are basically have moved mentally to the state of being voluntarist anarchists, but it's their job, and they're trying to do the best they can with the system. And when I ask them questions like, how does it feel to be in that system? There's always a silence, and then there's always a pain. Mm-hmm. And there's always an admission. My life was so much easier before this. Mm-hmm. Because there was a clear good guy and a clear bad guy, and I couldn't possibly be the bad guy. But eventually, you know, they have that red pill moment where you go, well, I cannot deny this. Mm-hmm. And, and some people say, well, why won't they leave? Well, I think in some instances those people feel like, well, I have an obligation now. Because I am the guy that will go, yeah, you know what, if you step on that guy's freaking head, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to do something about that or, or whatever it is. And then some of them just don't know what to do next with their lives yet. Yeah. i got one that's on my expert counsel now for law enforcement. He's out raising you know, animals. <laughs> he couldn't take it anymore. Um, it is, it's, it's hard. Look, it is we've hard. Been put, we've been put into a situation. Nobody is saying that this is easy. And, and look, if you look at the – all somebody has to do is look at my life or look at your life. And it's like the, the it's, you know, you've never won until you won. If you go back six years and you look at, at, at me, the first episode of the first season of this show that I was on, putting myself out there, but saying, look, I, you may have a problem with this. And the culture at large had a problem with it. And it's like, but putting myself out there to be like, but I know, I know that I'm participating in a completely voluntary, completely healthy, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's something that I feel confident in my core that this is a morally right thing to do. And you know what? Six, seven years later, sure enough, people stop me on the street, and it's like completely positive. Oh, my God, I love you. Oh, my God, this isn't. And it's like, yeah, but you don't know that until you want it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a point where you have to make decisions that are never easy and sometimes don't work. And I think both of us have been through that. Ten years ago, I was an owner in three different companies. I had partners. 
I had a hell of a salary. One of the companies had my name on it. And I have nothing to do with this man being president, so don't blame me, but Donald Trump was one of our clients, mm -hmm. right? How do you think these people that were working for me and working with me reacted when I said about 18 months into it, I've been doing a podcast in my car on a $30 recorder, and I'm selling out my ownership in this shit for next to nothing. You can have everything. I want nothing. I'm going off to do this for the rest of my life. There you go. You are insane. What are you doing? Why would you do that? You know, like it was like it, it, the fact that oh, you're just going to go out and rant in a microphone and you think you're going to have what you have now. And no, I don't. And that's why I'm doing it because I don't want what I have right now. But it ain't easy. And it is scary telling your wife, yeah, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And, and you know, they've come, they be, your family becomes used to a certain level of affluence and guarantees and stuff like that. You got to make that choice, and it's not easy. And it's the same thing, I think, psychologically. I think it's actually harder to psychologically move into a world of, of a voluntarist, agorist world when you're when you haven't done. I think once you do it, it gets really difficult in yes. some of your things. But I mean, to do it, the, the day you do it, it's like one day you just go, yeah, shit, okay, yeah, and it's it's that simple. And then there's the conflicts, but. When when you when you when you're trying to make that step and you don't understand what the other side is, I think it's horrifying for people because, and this is I think the biggest thing: people think they're more important than they are to the system. Where Truth. like if I if I don't vote, it's actually going to matter. Yet here's I'm I'm a logical guy, so explain that to me with math. Explain to me with math how your vote has a a, a bigger chance to influence anything you're going to vote on then you have a chance of dying in your car on the way to vote <laughs> explain that to me and they can't True. but they True. but they really feel like if they stop caring if they turn off the news if they if they you know choose not to back a party anymore or whatever that something will happen well you know what will happen when one person absolutely nothing for anybody else but you and, right. and your life might be difficult at first but it'll get better Now, the way you get real change is when enough people turn around and walk away. I'm sure you've seen the political cartoon and the guy's out like on a plank. He looks kind of like Richard mm -hmm. Nixon and he's talking. And there's a whole shitload of people standing on the other end of the plank. And the one guy mm -hmm. turns around and walks away. And it's like people don't know their own power. If everybody turns around and walks away, what happens to Tricky Dick out there? That's right. Into the cavern. We're not right. anywhere near there yet. So you can take your first freaking steps, man, and see where it leads. That's um, right. And that kind of is like, you know, you and I use the word anarchism a lot. I use the word voluntarist a lot now because I'm trying to not scare people away before right. they find out. But that leads to a direct conflict. Anarchism and statism. Yep. Where does that fit into everything that we've been talking about? Is that the question? That's the question? That's the question. <laughs> It's off your outline. You wanted it asked, so. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> no, what? Look, I, I honestly believe that. For me, this decision between anarchism and statism, when I talk about where the conflict is or when I discuss anarchism versus statism, I'm discussing it as an individualist. I'm saying, as would I, what is my life like as A, an anarchist, or B, a statist? And fundamentally what they are is they're just a state of mind. They're just a state of mind. Because even though I do consider myself an anarchist, I still have to live within the state. I mean, I'm an anarchist, but you know what? If I'm driving along and the cop lights come on behind me, I got to stop just like if I was a statist. You know, the difference is I actually have some understanding of, of what's really taking place, 
And for me in my life, actually having that understanding, not being under the uh, the, the sort of uh, hallucinatory trance that is statism, I'm actually able to have a much better outcome, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Because I'm actually able to talk from a space of power as an independent person. That doesn't mean to be rude. That doesn't mean to threaten the police. But it means because I'm an anarchist, I know my rights. Because I'm an anarchist, I don't believe that the police are always right. Because I'm an anarchist, I know what I should and should not be doing. And I've studied that because I've studied the state. You're also a pragmatist, though. You're not going to throw the door open, get out, and tell them to piss off and leave you alone, and you don't have to show them ID. That's right. Because you don't want to be tased. That's right. You're balancing pragmatism with your personal philosophy in life. And and I think that that's really the place to be at. Like I've said, I do believe that what is coming and what is necessary, and look, Jack, if anybody embodies it, you do, is that the, the revolution is an individual revolution. It's about individuals uh, gaining the skills and knowledge to live better within the world as it is. And I think that as you go down that path, you inevitably come to the fact that, like, wow, the state is holding me back from my individual potential. And then you live it, and when you live it and you embody it and it works for you, other people go, well, how do I get some of that? That's it. I mean, that's – so, like, you can influence people better by by doing better than you can by telling them they're wrong. If if Mm -hmm. you look at – what in, what entrenches people? It's basically you saying you're an idiot, you're wrong, you're a statist, you're a communist, you're a fascist, you're whatever, right? You're a racist, whatever it is, and it might even be true, but it still entrenches them. Mm-hmm. So, like when people say, "Well, they're racist," well, like, well, what would you like for them? Would you like them to remain racist? Right. Because if you'd like them to remain racist, trust me, telling them that they're racist is the best way you can make sure that they stay that way for the rest of their lives. You might even shame them into going underground, right? But they're going to stay that way. Well, you know know what's interesting, Jack? Bringing up one of the things that I've found to be, and people are often very surprised by this. I certainly, I grew up in a a mainly minority community. I'm half black and half Latino, and, and you maybe might not know that from my voice, which is right there should be like a little bit of a state break. But the thing is that... One of the most interesting things that I found when somebody says – very few people will say I am an avowed racist. But I find people who are avowed racist to be some of the most interesting people. Like, huh. And the one thing that I've never found – like I've met many avowed racists, and I've always been like, tell me about that. Like tell me how you came to this. Like was this something you grew up with? Was this something you discovered over time? Like – Talk to me about not in an attempt to argue with them, yeah. not in an attempt to change them away from anything, but look what's happening. They're sitting down and calmly discussing their personal philosophy, their history, and all of that with someone who's black and Latino who's sitting there listening to them. If I want to make a difference on what they think about people of other races, that's how you do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there's a human being in there, and I think that like right. sometimes we take a look at somebody's beliefs, and we make as though that belief is equal to an action. Um, so there, there are things I think that you've, if you've done them, even if you can be redeemed, I'm not really interested in it. I'm seeing a big hole with your name on it, right? If you've sexually molested children, exactly. if somebody puts a bullet in your head, throws you in the ground, that's fine. But being even yeah. a neo-Nazi, I don't put on that same level. And I'm sure people just got pissed. They got pound triggered right there, right? But I don't because they haven't actually done it. They just think something. That's right. You're always redeemable from what you think, right? My my father-in-law 
was in the underground in World War II, and he was in his teens. His father was a leader in the underground. He had been captured and taken to a concentration camp. My father-in-law then had no place to live. He was running places and working with other people in the underground. He got caught by flat-out, I mean, as Nazis, swastika on the arm with a suitcase full of Nazi uniforms. What do you think mm. the underground's doing with those? So what do you think his future is? Not real bright. Well, he ends up, they're going to march him from one place to another, and then they're going to shoot him. Well, the guy that's detailed to march him there says before he marches him there, I'm going to get sick, you're going to run, you're going to keep running, you're not going to look back. Yeah. Right? And he doesn't know whether it's just an excuse so he can shoot him or it's a legitimate attempt to help him. But you got one play. So mm -hmm. that's what happens. He takes off. He sinks up some other people. He survives the war. He ends up serving in the Dutch Marine Corps at the end of the war and for five years in post-war Europe. And he's alive because that man that made a decision that day. Well, that man was a Nazi. That's right. He was that's a right. he was this not. You, 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 there's no arguing that. But was he irredeemable? That's his right. actions outweighed his thoughts. And that's where I, I, I take it you're kind of a very spiritual person. I don't know your background, but I see you more as a spiritual person than a religious person. And, sure. and to me, that is the difference between spiritualism and religion. Religion, I'm worried about what you say, what you profess, what you think. Spiritualism, there's some of that because it affects who we are. But I'm much more worried about what you do. That's right. Right? So, I mean, I live a pretty low-carbon lifestyle. I do all types of things with permaculture. I do I'm as environmental as they get. I do not believe AGW is the problem people say it is. I don't know whether right. you think about that or not, but to me it doesn't matter because the actions are everything you'd like me to do. Right. But since I say the wrong words, I'm wrong. And again, if I'm wrong someday, I will admit it if I convince myself of that. Because every thought is redeemable, it, even if it's a, it's a horrible thought, it is actions that take us past the point of no return. So that's the, you right there, that's the embodiment of being, you asked about collectivism, You we've just gone through and what the embodiment of being an individualist is, is viewing people as individuals as opposed to where they fit in some arbitrary collectivist label. And I think that that's, that is truly a revolution, man, and especially now it's needed. Absolutely. So one of the things we do when we have shows like this, we, we you know, I'm sure there were some red pills handed out today. Um, <laughs> a lot of people have, have nibbled on it, finally swallowed one a day. But if you don't get to that state of discomfort, you say, well, what the hell do I do about all this? Mm. So when people say, I want to live a more free life, and I know I'm not going to change the system tomorrow or next week or next year. Uh, so how do I actually live more free? What do you say to that? In terms of concrete things that people can do, obviously, if they're listening to your show, they're doing some things when it comes to self-reliance, right? So it's separate. It is taking on individual responsibility. But I honestly believe, honestly, that the, the most concrete thing, particularly for people who are like, well, I don't have land or I don't have all of this. I do believe that the most important thing that you could do right now to live a more voluntary life is – to start participating in the free market. So that is agorism, agorism, that's building the agora. Agora means free market. The easiest and most profound way that you can do that is to get yourself some cryptocurrency, some Bitcoin, some Ethereum, some Dash, whatever it is, preferably to do it with cash at a Bitcoin ATM and to actually use it. Like, and the thing is, we're articulating a lot of things here, but as we've said, that like it's very important to embody it. And to have that experience. And so if it's going and get, getting some Bitcoin and buying Amazon gift cards and then having something ordered to your house, something that I do, I mean, if people are in a place where there's a Whole Foods, 
I, I now shop at Whole Foods in Las Vegas where I live, and I exclusively pay in cryptocurrency by going to gift.com and getting Bitcoin gift cards that's Whole Foods. That I, and I hold my phone up with the gift card, and they scan it, and boom, it's done. Hmm. And, and to embody that and to start to realize, like, oh, I can – what are the things I've done in the last month? In the last month, I've paid for hotels and, and uh, plane flights on Expedia. I've ordered Papa John's pizza. I've gone to Whole Foods. I've uh, taken a Southwest, a flight on Southwest. So all of these things, I went and had lunch at Outback, all of these things with Bitcoin, all of these things with cryptocurrency. And it's like when you start to embody it and you start to realize like, oh, wow, I actually – there is a free market and I can participate in it as an individual. I believe that that's what – and I've, as I've talked to other people and they've started doing the same thing, what that does, how it opens your mind – it's the same thing as anybody who the first time that they that their permaculture system is going and it yields some some actual produce, right? It's the first time with the ducks that the ducks actually lay some eggs and you eat them, or that you that you cook that you clean and cook a fish that you actually caught. The difference, and everybody knows what that difference is. Everybody knows that palpable difference between eating food that you grew or you caught or you hunted. And then maybe eating the exact same species cooked in the exact same way that you bought from the store. And I, and I think that to truly embody that in, in a, a realm where right now the, the entire system is based on this fraudulent financial system, that the same thing, using Bitcoin for, your, for as much of your day-to-day -day as you can, or at least trying it, is, is the equivalent in power of cook, cleaning and cooking a fish that you caught yourself. Because it's a mental shift. It's a huge mental shift. I, I completely agree with that. I would one of my favorite quotes of all times is by an author named Richard Bach. And I don't know if you're familiar with Bach at all, but he wrote books that were quite. I think you'd dig them, man. They're they're very spiritually written, conceptual thought forms and things like that. Very they're, they're fiction books, right? And this book Illusions, he he writes this like, well, what if, if a Christ-like character showed up today? And in this book, he's flying through like the Midwest, like Ohio and stuff like that, landing a biplane. And giving people a ride for three bucks. That's how he's making his living, right? And he comes across this dude named Donald Shmoda. And Donald Shmoda is the, the, the you know, the, the modern Christ-like figure. And he becomes his mentor and he's teaching him stuff. And at one point he says to him, he says, he says, well, how do you learn all this stuff? He goes, they give you a book, right? He says, they give you a book. He throws this book at him. It's like this little book and it just has sayings in it. And he's like, he's like, well, what do you, how do you use it? He says, you just open it with a thought in your head and whatever you're looking for, the answer's there. And, he goes, and he's like, a magic book. And he goes, nah, you can do it with anything. You can do it with Snoopy the dog if you want to, if you, if you think about it right, you know. But, yeah, this one's a little bit more dialed in. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. But one, mm -hmm. one day he looks in the book, and it says, the best way to avoid responsibilities is to say I've got responsibilities. There you go. Right? And, and to me, that is like the mental shift. When you realize, like, there is one SSU that's the ship. You're its captain, and there's nobody else. So whatever happens... It may not be your fault, but no one has more influence over it than you. That's because right. if I jump out of the bushes and cold cock you in the back of the head and beat the shit out of you, right? Yeah, you are. A, I, I hate when people say there's no such thing as a victim because you're kind of a victim right there, right? Sure. But it's up to you, like, how do you live your life? Situational awareness so it's less likely to happen. As long as I didn't kill you, how do you put your life back together? What right. do you do with yourself? Because a lot of people, that, that, that phantom that's jumping out of the bushes beating their ass every day... It's the education system. It's the, it's the yep. state system. Those are the, and you're letting that bully kick your ass every day. 
And you don't have to. Cryptocurrency, damn well one way to head out of there. Absolutely. Um, all this stuff, dude, is in your book. Really badass. Like I said, I'm about halfway through it. Uh, now I'm excited to read the rest of it. You want to tell people how they can get it? Because they're not going to go to Amazon for this one, right? No, no. So part of it, again, part of it is, you know, you got to practice what you preach. And I'm telling people to embody this. So myself, this book will only ever be sold for cryptocurrency. Uh, you can buy it. So this, the whole system that I set up, when you buy the book from top to bottom, there, we are not dealing with the state. Well, I am sending some of these by U.S. mail. So, yeah, there's a little bit of that. Sure. But you're not, other than that, you're not dealing with the state. You're not dealing with the bank. So it's all via cryptocurrency. You can buy either the hard copies. Every single hard copy is signed. And I really, really have enjoyed the people who have reached out to me and said either, oh, this is my first cryptocurrency purchase ever and it's awesome or who have told me their story uh, as they've ordered these things, and it's made me feel a lot closer to the people who, who are enjoying these ideas, and you know, it's, it helps to build a community, something I couldn't do with Amazon. And, and also, and I'm gonna send you actually the links for this, uh, Jack, I just remembered it as I came into the studio. Now what's available is also the audiobook read by this guy, John Loth, whose voice is absolutely amazing, and the ebook. So you can buy the audiobook and ebook together, or you could buy the hard copy by itself, or you could buy all three together. You could do that at vinarmani.com. You could just go to vinarmani.com slash self-ownership if you want the direct link. Otherwise, vinarmani.com, and it's just right in the top menu. It says buy self-ownership. One thing I did want to mention about the um, about the audiobook, again, embodying this this revolution or this evolution, I should say. The audiobook and the digital copy, the ebook, are both hosted and so will be delivered to you uh, via IPFS, which is the interplanetary file system, which is a decentralized, it's going to be the new internet. It's kind of like the blockchain meets BitTorrent. It's really amazing, but it's it's free and uncensorable and immutable, just like the blockchain. So you're actually, not only are you going to be interacting with cryptocurrency in this, but you're going to be interacting with this awesome new system called IPFS that is really, truly the people's internet that allows anybody to have all the bandwidth in the world to utilize. It's really, really amazing. So, so yeah, uh, slash self ownership is great. And, and good entrepreneurs solve problems for their customers. So, one of the things people might be going, I'm not sure what this IPFS thing is. So you just had a video out, right, that shows people how to That's use right. it. So, That's right. So, I'll make sure I put a link to that in the show notes so people can see how to use it. Because uh, I think it's cool. Like, the more you learn, like, the fact that, like, it's a little bit like you have to learn a skill to use a technology. That's a good thing. That's right. Because that means. The everyday person in the state doesn't do that, right? <laughs> and that's part of what gives you that tactical advantage, and I'm sure we'll continue to evolve through there. But, uh, yeah, I'll have links to all that in the show notes. And if folks are like, I don't have any cryptocurrency, go to my site. There's a banner right at the top that says Coinbase. I, I'm all with Vin on buying in other ways, but, you know, if you want to do this easily, click that banner, fund your account with a, with 100 bucks. Now you got 100 bucks worth of Bitcoin. They'll give you 10. That'll pay for half his book. That's you right. Know, well, actually, that'll pay for the whole digital there you uh, go. copy. So get you can get the audio book and the ebook, And so there you go, Jack. That's perfect. You can get it for free by opening your Coinbase account today. If you don't already have one, throw 100 bucks in there. And the rest of the 90 bucks you can go do something else with, like convert it to Dash and then do business with nobody knowing what it is or, or whatever you want to do. Um, so, yeah, that kind of wraps us up. Then I want to ask you, could you hang on through my closing segment? Because sure. I want to include you in our song of the day, if that'd be all right. Absolutely. All right, guys. So 
uh, as we've wrapped up the interview today, I wanted to go ahead and uh, give you the YouTuber of the day or YouTube channel of the day. This is a very high-end, as far as production value channel, I mean, on the level with, like, network television level of production value. It did come to me from a member of the audience, and uh, that member's name is, I don't know. I have no idea, uh, because nothing in the email address or the name uh, really hits me as something that is somebody's name. So, somebody sent me this. I guess they want to remain anonymous, but the... Uh, The channel has 1.2 million subscribers, and it's called Great Big Story. And it's all really cool stuff. I mean, um, it is a global media company devoted to cinematic storytelling, headquartered in New York. They have business bureaus in uh, London and Stockholm. Uh, I figured the easiest way to tell you what this is about is they have a great little like 35-second trailer video, so I'll play it for you. Here's that. And, of course, I do have a link to them in today's show notes. Remember, if you want to submit a YouTube channel, it doesn't have to have 1.2 million subscribers, just a 1,000. Send it to me, and sooner or later it will end up on the show. I'm not really going in the order of received, but I sort of kind of am. I'll tell you what I'm doing. If it's a bushcrafting channel or a gardening channel, I'm trying to get a few other things in between it so we're not landsliding just with that stuff, which is something that's obviously heavy topic for us. But I want variety in us, so I want it to be more than just prepping survival. I want this to be cool because one of the cool things about people that are doing their own independent production of videos like this Uh, is it gives you alternatives to mainstream media, even though these guys are kind of close to that. They still have some really interesting stuff. And, you know, you cut the cable bill down, whatever it is for you. I want to make sure I'm providing you options like that. You can check it out. Again, the channel's called Great Big Story, and I do have a link to their channel in the show notes for you today. On that, if you want to help support the Survival Podcast, and you're like, Jack, I, I'm already a MSB member. What else can I do? Or, like, I, the MSB doesn't do it for me, Jack. What can I do to help you in a painless way? What you can do is when you're going to go shopping online and buy stuff at a place like Amazon.com, you can go to a place called T-SPAZ first. T-S-P-A-Z, T-S-P-A-Z, T-SPAZ.com. When you get there, you can get on over to Amazon and do your shopping. If you do that, you're helping us, okay? Uh, but you can also see our item of the day reviews. There's a link to bring them all up there. And uh, just on the survivalpodcast.com, I put out our item of the day reviews. You can subscribe to our email newsletter at the survivalpodcast.com. Just click on subscribe, fill out a form. We will never email you spam. Well, only All I do is I email whatever I put on the blog. You get a quick email that says there's a blog post. That's, that's my entire email list prop, uh, campaign uh, program, and that's it. Today I have a product for you called the Regency Soup Sock. You get nine of them for about nine bucks, so they're about a buck a piece. What is this thing? It's kind of a cheesecloth-like bag. And what you do is you take a chicken, or something else, but chickens especially, and you stick it in there and you simmer it to make stock. And then when you're done simmering it and you want to get the chicken out of the stock without having a bazillion little bones in the bottom, you just pick it up and pull it out. You open it up, you pull your chicken out, you pick your extra meat off of it, you throw it back in, you add your vegetables, you send them to your vet, and you got chicken soup. Or you just make bone stock or whatever. They're awesome. You can reuse them. I usually don't, but they can certainly be reused, especially if you don't tie them up real tight. Uh, it makes it a little easier to untie them instead of just cutting them to get them open. Uh, I've, I, I haven't, I, I don't generally reuse them. Uh, but I have played with one to see how many times I could reuse it before I got frustrated with it, and it was about three. 
All right, just so if you do want to reuse them, reuse, recycle, upcycle, etc. You can probably do it more than three, but that was about it for me. Um, I use this mainly for leftover chickens. Our drill is we buy uh, a roaster chicken. I'll do it with like potatoes and maybe some gravy and some stuff like that roasted. Maybe butterflied out with like herbs and garlic and stuff under the... You want me to tell you how you do that? So you take the chicken... You cut the backbone out of it, throw it in your stock pot to make your gravy with your neck and your wingtips and that stuff. You lay it out flat. You pry up the skin so you can reach under the skin around the breast and then up around the skin to the thighs and into the legs. Then you make yourself up a paste. And I'm not going to give you a specific paste, but I'll give you an idea of one you could make. You use like garlic, um, salt, pepper, some other herbs, but lots of parsley. And then maybe something like a little bit of feta cheese, some lemon zest, right? And, you know, whatever you want that kind of makes a thick herbal paste, some butter is good on that. And you take it and you shove it under the skin. Now, you, you don't peel, you don't skin the chicken, you just separate a little bit, you shove it under there, and then you leave it in place. You, you hit it with a little bit of oil, a little salt and pepper, and whatever herbs you like on the outside, and you roast it that way. Oh, my God, it's fantastic. And you make up a gravy with a little bit of butter and you have chicken and gravy and roasted potatoes or, you know, roasted carrots or whatever you want for dinner that night. There's always a lot of stuff left on the chicken. So then you throw the chicken, the leftover core, into the soup sock and you throw that into a pot and you make my leftover chicken soup. How do you do that? I'm not going to tell you today. We've been on the air long enough. But it is a there's a, a complete step-by-step recipe for how to make leftover chicken chicken soup. Uh, with the soup sock in the review today at the survivalpodcast.com. That brings us up to our song of the day. All right, so song of the day today was this, uh, you know, sent to me as always by John Adam. And again, I've said, guys, I don't understand how he's so spot on with how these songs fit in. Other maybe that little soliloquy I had on Richard Bach and how you read things into stuff maybe has something to do with it here. But the song today is called A Criminal Mind. It's by uh, by Goan, and I've never heard this. I think this song came out in the 80s, if I remember right. John said that like when he first heard this song, it totally freaked him out, because it's about the criminal we were talking about a little bit today, the irredeemable. Um, but I want to give you guys a few lines, and then I'll play the song for you when we wrap up as always. But here's some lines from the song. I've spent my life behind these steel bars. I've paid my debt in time. But being brought to justice... That was my only crime. I don't regret a single action. I do the same again. These prison walls secure me and I'm numb to pain. Before you hand me over, before you read my sentence, I'd like to say a few words here in my own defense. Some people struggle daily. They struggle with their conscience till the end. I have no guilt to haunt me. I have no wrong intent. That's pretty dark, Vin, huh? That's scary. Like, I don't care that I killed you. I don't care. I have no, like, this is the complete socio psychopath, right? Yeah, but I've always, I, but I've always said it's the state, right? Well, when I, we do a, a segment in the show, a history segment, and we had this amazing guy, Alex Shrugged, that over like a thousand episodes did the year that was the episode for me. I've heard them. They're great. They're, they're pretty cool, right? So all I could think of when I read that was Tamar Lane. And for maybe those of us that weren't with us during that segment, Tamerlane was Hitler until there was Hitler. For a thousand years, Tamerlane was the embodiment of mass murder. Um, 
and he was like the, the Mongol that made Genghis Khan look like Donald Duck. I mean, just amazing atrocities committed by this guy. But I want to read, 1405 was the year this guy died. And, and Alex had this in the, the segment. I'd love to hear what you think when you hear this, Finn. This is uh, not, not the death of, but his, the, Alex's take. History has judged Tamerlane to be the personification of evil, but it is instructive to hear that what he thought of himself. Quote, I am not a man of blood, and God is my witness, that in all my wars I have never been the aggressor, and that my enemies have always been the authors of their own calamity, end quote. Tamur, after the conquest of Aleppo, shortly before he buried 4,000 Armenians alive and murdered 1 million Hindus in India, hardly any evil person in history thought themselves evil while they were doing it. And to me, that is the embodiment of the state. If you ask these people doing these things today, if what they're doing is evil, they don't believe so, and that's what makes it so dangerous. I, I, I mean, I agree. Not only that, those are exactly when you build a state and you build a structure that is uh, legitimized immorality and legal immorality, you are guaranteed at least every once in a while to get one of those guys at the top. It's just a numbers game. Absolutely. Well, Vin, I appreciate you being with us today and hanging out with us Thank in the segment. Man. I think it's the only time I involved a guest in the music segment. I'm honored, man. I'm honored that you've had me on this many times, and I love talking with you. It's always wonderful. So thank you so much. Well, we'll certainly have you back. And with that, this has been Jack Spearco today, along with Vin Armani, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or if they don't. for sore criminal eyes. The Florentine masterpiece. Seizing the moment, he snatched it from the wall. No man strikes again. Again. School uniform for budding arch criminals. I am.